0: Hello, and welcome to NICU Care with NIDCAP, a podcast designed to support parents of children in the NICU. My name is Jeff Bradbury, and I'll be your host for today's program. NIDCAP is short for the Newborn Individualized Developmental Care and Assessment Program. In each episode, we bring you doctors, parents, healthcare workers, and others to discuss the best practices to support the health and development of hospitalized newborns, infants and their families, and those that care for them in the ICU settings and beyond. In today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Heidi Alls, the Director of Neurobehavioral Infant and Child Studies, Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical Center. If you have any questions about today's program or would like to be featured on a future episode, please visit our website, nidcap.org. That's NIDCAP.org for more information. And please remember to click and subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family members. And now, my conversation with Dr. Heidi Alls. My guest today is the famous Dr. Heidi Alls, the founder of the NIDCAP Federation International. Dr. Alls, how are you today? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. I am honored to be here. I just had my 80th birthday. And so it's a double honor to continue to have the opportunity
0: to speak about this work. That's so important. You know, it it is important. 80 years, a lifetime of helping people out, working with people. I'm just going to ask, how many... How many babies do you think you've had the opportunity to have blessed in your presence? I, I'm I'm sure it's 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 quite a few over the last over the last many years.
1: Yes, and uh, I have never counted them. I think the most important aspect of it is how many colleagues and others there are out there in the world who eat meet and support so many other families. So my part is a little part and Mm -hmm. the the bigger group uh, really is doing, you know, by now certainly the front line of the work and new people are coming up through the ranks who are training other people and parents have taken over a lot of the advocacy for their own child and the children yet to be born to other parents.
0: You know, I think everybody who has had a child in the NICU certainly has been either directly or indirectly um, influenced by the work that you and your teams have done over the last couple of years. I want to talk a little bit today about the work you've done, the work you're doing. Let's just kind of jump all the way back. How did you get into medicine? How did you get interested in working with young children? and, and to talk t- take us all the way back to the beginning.
1: Yes, where is the beginning? <laughs> the, uh, the beginning from a more global perspective probably is my interest throughout my childhood and my studies in the individuality of children, of people in general what makes them the people they are and what all influenced that and how much are they themselves contributing to how they move forward. I was a school teacher in Germany and I learned third grade, all boys, I learned (laughs) immediately how ill-equipped I was to understand each one of them. And they taught me that for each child, the interactions and the support does best when it's tailored to this child, when I understand the child. And uh, from there, I got more and more fascinated to learn more about that and studied psychology eventually here in the United States and had always all along the good fortune to meet inspirational uh, teachers and professors who helped me on the course to understand newborns. My own son helped me, of course, also, and that tied right into the story. He was born at full term with a what, what medically is called a polymicrogyria, which is an over convolution of the right frontal part of his brain that has made him a person who has seizures and who has developmental disabilities and heightened abilities, like often is the case. From early on, he taught me what my ideas were in how to raise him was essentially irrelevant, but what his ideas were in how I could best support him was what was key. And he uh, he taught me how to adapt, how to uh, distract when indicated and go on and push further when he was ready to take that next step. And he still teaches me. He's in his 50s and, you know, life goes on and we learn from one another and support one another.
0: And I know you're very focused on behavioral languages, watching young children, trying to figure right. out how they're communicating with the world. You know, uh, we were talking before the show here about my triplets and how even from an early age, they all had their personalities. They exactly. all had communicating exactly. um, even at a very early age. What about that is, is, is interesting? How, how, why is that what was gravitating you? What, what really caught your attention there?
1: What caught my attention in terms of babies born early, when I saw the early ones in, the, in 1970 or 69 at the University of Pennsylvania, these babies, yes, needed medical support. They mainly l- were looking for, if you will, support to their breathing that they couldn't do. Yet they said so much more. And they said... I need my. I want my hands to my mouth. I want to curl up, when they would get stretched out so they could get intubated, uh, breathed for. They would arch against the adult, and they were pretty outspoken that this was overwhelming them and it was interfering with their own competencies as a, at that time, 27, 28-week baby. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I, from a behavioral observation perspective, I was a graduate student at the time, when I brought this up to one of the neonatologists, one of the pa- pediatricians who had really allowed me to, invited me to come into this unit, Maria voria who just passed away, which is a big loss for neonatology and and, and for me. uh, uh, She said, you may be right, but we don't know enough how to keep them alive. So you do your observing and you help us down the line when we are through the phase of having to worry so much to sustain their lives, uh, how we might be doing it better. I I always figured let's do it with the baby instead of like overriding the baby. And that challenge, keep observing, keep helping articulate what these babies are all about really influenced me greatly. And then in, once I work, once I started formal observations in the nursery, I mean, I, I first learned that parents were told when the baby goes home, now he's fine, treat him like any other baby, mm-hmm. what whatever that means, and and I could tell in their eyes they knew that was just assurance to them. Their baby wasn't like their full-term child at home. Their full-term child never had gone through these phases. Right. So the idea of catch-up was off, the, off target. They were on a different path, each baby on his or her own path. And how to help figure that out, first I studied that they are indeed different when they are at the same comparable ages post expected due date. Uh, how can we help them to not get off offline, off their hoped for uh, track? In the nursery, yeah. so much appeared to have to happen to support their lung function, to support their nutrition, and much of it was completely foreign to these Fetuses, babies in the womb. That's who they are. And they're suddenly outside and have to grapple with that loss of the mother, the nutrition, the warmth, the endocrine function, the hormonal cycles and the diurnal rhythms. They don't have it anymore. So we are so, NICUs are are so much advanced now yet are still so primitive compared to the well-functioning womb. And to bridge that gap, I found it very important to understand the baby as best as we can to support coming back to base when overwhelmed, helping close it down, help it soften back, help it, help that baby, that brain uh, have the time to Build the best connectivities that the baby could, given that uh, is this difference of a NICU. So,
0: so let's jump back to the '70s for a second, and, and and again, we were talking a little bit about this before we started the recording here. My my triplets were born at 25 weeks. Back in the '70s, um, I don't see that that would have been possible. What what back in the '70s and '80s, be, before the technology boom really hit. And, and hospitals, of course, transformed. For, you know, because of the technology, at what gestation age was it feasible to say baby would have survived, baby wouldn't survive? I'm not, I'm not even going to say babies at this point. Just one single child. Like, what was that cutoff point? Because now it's 25 weeks with my kids. I think you can even go down to 22, 23 weeks, depending on optimal situations. But what what was it back then?
1: I mean, when, when I had that opportunity at the University of Pennsylvania, 27 weeks was a very early baby. 28 mm-hmm. weeks, the, the baby could be helped. Mm-hmm. I don't have the survival figures in my head. There are no doubt papers that document that carefully. Yet, to us, to the doctors, and to the behavioral observer, these seemed very small, very immature babies. And even the lung function was so hard to support. It's still a challenge, yet there are so many more options. Same with nutrition. How do you bring it to a immature body and brain to to integrate such external inputs that are essential to the survival of this child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, to me, I never have had to put a line in a tiny, tiny vein. Mm-hmm. I ne- never had, well, I helped pump uh, the, the blue bags for the for the breathing, the bagging, <laughs> but that was a you know relatively primitive mechanical task <laughs> mm-hmm. that that anyone could do. And so my I am in awe of neonatologists and nurses who have the skill to work with such a small infant and help that infant survive. By well, now we by now we expect more than just survival by now we expect quality of survival because by now we have so much more knowledge about the baby and the baby's brain and how we can make it easier for that brain to develop as best as possible
0: Well the one the one thing that any parent learns when they walk into that NICU for the first time and probably even hearing the words NICU for the first time is everybody that's associated with that room, with that building, with that wing has, has, has a halo and has a bunch of wings running around them constantly. Um, I actually had to just drop myself off the video. Cause I kind of got emotional when you said 27 and my kids were born at 25. So I kind of got me when you said that, I gotta be honest with you. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the, the life in that NICU being somebody who works there. I mean, on one hand you're taking care of the children on one hand, you're taking care of each other. But on the other hand, you're also there to help take care of the families. Talked about the importance of not just the the child development area of being a medical surgeon, medical doctor, but also uh, that parent support. That you know that that's still going on. Even honestly, right now during this recording, that's still going on. Well, why is that important for people in the medical profil- uh, profession? Not only to handle kids, but the families as well.
1: Yeah, and just to make a little comment, I'm not a medical doctor. That's just, that's in a way an advantage. And then on the other side, it, it helps me appreciate what the medical doctors are doing. I'm mm. a psychologist. and in, in, Just in observing, I learned quickly that a nurse at the bedside would love to stay with this baby as she's just tucked the baby onto the side and helped the baby calm down the breathing and gradually go, down, back into sleep. Now the alarm of the other baby, that she's in, that she cares for, rings, and she has to go over there. And so, two hands of a professional caregiver will never stay with a baby for the length of time that that baby hopes those hands and those attuned eyes will stay with that baby. So, where are the parents? What do we make so difficult for the parents to come in? I mean, in the early years, there were no parents. They were only allowed to look through glass windows to see that little baby in that incubator, you know, yet more barriers between the parent and the baby. And they would hang on every word if anyone came through the door to to, to ask, how is my baby? So it was so obvious that if the baby can no longer be in the womb, well, at least the person who has nurtured this baby to 25 weeks or to 26 weeks or maybe only to 23 weeks in certain circumstances, that person knows and cares about that baby more than anybody else and will continue to care about the baby and is the one who will take this baby home. And that's obviously the person the baby is waiting for, wants to be back with. So if not in the womb, then at least in the arms, in the hands, on the body as we then learn skin to skin, which we learned from South America that the nurseries there, or the settings that had no equipment, well, when the the doctor in charge said to the mother, "You, if you hold the baby, the baby will stay warm, and uh probably the baby will survive, and sure enough, the baby did. Now, those were not yet the babies we now care for in intensive care units, those very fragile early ones, you know, like your your triplets were. Uh, so we have to have room to make it possible for the medical staff and the nursing staff to attend to this baby while making room emotionally calm and supportive and inviting for the parent to manage at this intensive setting, in this intensive setting, to feel I'm the parent. I, I, I know this little child and he or she knows my voice, mm-hmm. be it the mother and or the father. Those are the first signals the fetus hears and the first language signals the, fetus he is in the womb, first the mother, and then eventually from the outside, so if the father is there, and all dads tell me, well, I talk to that baby, <laughs> Yeah, you know, oh. I had my my head on her womb and tried to listen for his gurgle sounds or whatever else was going on there and sp- I, we spoke with her, we had a name for her, and you know that that's parenting. And to suddenly say, now this baby can't be in your arms, can't be touched by you, is a huge disruption. It's a, such a disruption for the baby to come out, and it's just as much a disruption for the parent to to have to go through this. So can we bridge that gap? You know, we have all these gaps to bridge, We have the knowledge and the technology to help the survival. And the parent wants the very best. One of our neonatology chiefs once told me, parents will do anything if we ask them to jump through a ring of fire before entering the unit and we say that's important, they will do that. So we have to be very mindful that we recognize how beholden they are to us and we, we, we must make that environment supportive. It's our job. You no, know, that's what that's what our profession demands from us.
0: You know, it's that, one is thing a, to
1: have it. that is a hard part, you know, that's a hard was a hard mountain to climb. <laughs> and to see the baby and the parent. You know, that now then we go to family-centered care without regard of the baby. That was one of the swings that we have tried to overcome. Our focus initially was on the baby, of course, assuming the parent will be there. Yet the parent wasn't, so the parent has to be brought in. Yet the baby is the reason why the parent is there. Yeah. So we have to learn to understand both to help them be the best together. Yeah.
0: You know, it's an amazing experience for anybody that goes through it. You know, sometimes even when a child's full term, they're in the NICU for a couple of days. we, we had two out of our three triplets be in the NICU for four months. One of them was in for six or seven months. And I was saying earlier, stayed in a pediatric facility for three years after that uh, with some other medical complications. And it is hard, right? G- going in there and saying, okay, you're free to leave the hospital and go home, but the reason you're here is going to stay here for a little bit. Right. Um four months in some cases. Right. right. It's, it's amazing. It's a lot of trust. It's a lot yes. of, it's a lot of education. And it's a lot yes. of knowing that the people who are in there, um, they're there to help mm-hmm. you. They're there to help you and your family.
1: Yes. And I think that trust is what the baby has in us. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the the parents inevitably have in the caregivers they have no choice Mm -hmm. and you know when when parents get angry in a unit it's so understandable yeah it's so much stress and they see their baby now that we they are you know now that they can be there so much more and longer they know the difference in in caregivers they know the difference in hands in how their baby is moved and how their baby is spoken to and what that face of the caregiver tells them. And they get anxious and angry if that's not the care that they know their baby thrives with. Mm -hmm. So then the support to the staff is so important to understand that, yeah. And it's easy to become defensive and you get into these altercations between staff and some parents, and parents say, once you are known as a difficult parent, you can never lift that label down, no matter what you do. And that's a, a challenge we have in a, in a hospital setting in staff support. So it's baby support, parent support, and staff support. And that's critical. And if the staff never has time away from the bedside and is always frontline, and 12-hour shifts for a nurse in most hospitals now, that's an enormous amount of time to be mentally, emotionally, and cognitively fully aware and attuned. Who often not just one, but several babies and their parents. So we must from the administrative end build in the reflection time for staff, the one-on-one that they often want and thrive with, group conversations, that all has to be built into their time. That can't be rushed at the discharge, you know, at the turnover. Shift change in f- five minutes doesn't work.
0: You know, and I, I, that's
1: a huge challenge in the current healthcare system where payment is frontline, hands on. Yeah.
0: You know, even though the triplets are seven years old, I, I clearly remember going from, you know, they were in the box, they were under the blue light to, okay, now they're able to come out and be held. I remember them cutting my shirt open so they can lay on my chest yes. and, you know, and, and do all that stuff. And then suddenly it's okay, here's the diaper, it's your turn. And I'm going, whoa, what is all this? How is this happening? And, and it yes. does seem like it happened so fast, even <laughs> though it wasn't really that fast. But, yes. but I, I, you know, because of all of these things, because of your passion. Um, you were the originator of the newborn individualized developmental care and assessment program, otherwise known as NIDCAP. NIDCAP. Talk to us a little bit about that. How did, how did it come about? How did it get started? And, and, and it, it obviously it's affecting everybody and all the work that you guys are doing. Talk to us a little bit about the, the genesis of this.
1: Yes, it, it was clear to me that the language of the baby needed to be well understood and that that language would help us bridge the gap between the baby's expectation and what the baby currently really experienced. So from constructing a catalog of behaviors, if you will, a dictionary of communications that the baby was producing, giving, communicating with, how fast is it changing? How small do the windows of observation have to be for others to still manage it? I mean, I had done some work with 15 second windows. I went on and on and on with some 50 some behaviors. Uh, that's unrealistic for staff in a caregiving facility in, a, in like in the hospital. And so we, I settled on two minutes by two minutes and uh, I don't remember how many behaviors are on that observation sheet. To, to learn how the autonomic function with the motor function, with the state from sleep to awake to upset back down again, how they all interdigitate and what that baby brings to, to manage to regulate himself back, him or herself back into some balance. And or is fortunate enough to have the caregiver the parent the the professional caregiver help with that regulation sort of in a co-regulatory way come back to base to get ready for the next step so in trying to formulate this i spent hours and hours and weeks and i don't remember how many years in a unit just observing This was here in boston at the at the old lying in hospital and then the became the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And the nurses would ask, what are you doing here? You know, Why are you here at night? What are you writing on those sheets? And that was my opportunity to say, look what this baby is doing. Can we maybe, can you maybe think how we could help this baby more into being tucked? How we might help that baby not have that much light on his or her face. And so Gretchen Lohan was one of the first persons, people who was very interested in this and who helped me translate what I observed, what the baby seemed to be saying into, can we answer this baby? Can we respond in a supportive fashion to help this baby? do better and get ready for his or her own next step more easily. And the nurses were creative. You know, they, a, good, a number of them, a core group of them, uh, took this and modified the, the setting in the incubator, helped get them from the warming tables where they were exposed to a big open room faster into the incubator started to help them have a cover over the naked skin to make the skin feel more soothed. And so on and so forth, and help them help them tuck them together before even beginning to feed. and gradually include the parent. You know? And so they the, the keep the parent out there, dropped away. We need the parent. There's not enough hands of us. And so these were the early experiments. Is this safe? And we had to do a study. We did a study. One of the neonatologists, Liz Brown, was very interested. She saw that these babies breathed more easily and not as many got severe lung disease, although we had no documentation at the time. And she encouraged me, let's get a grant and study it. And you know her super her boss at the time said, first, I have to know it's safe mm-hmm. because I don't quite know what you guys are all talking about. I need to see the chest of the baby. I need to see the baby naked on the bed, on the back so I can see the the breathing pattern. And the nurses said, we know how to read the baby, we see it on the monitor, we see the baby's behavior, trust us. And so we got a grant from the Hood Foundation here in Massachusetts and uh, outside of Boston. An MD had, could only be the PI, PI, so Liz, the neonatologist, Liz Brown said, I'll be the PI, you write the, you write the grant and we'll look phase one, you observe, and we we, we leave the care, the care always is. And phase two, the the information we glean from observing that you glean from your observations, we attempt to utilize, to support the baby in all care actions and between care actions to the best of our ability. So we did that and not only was it safe, it was a small study forget, eight and eight or something like that. Uh, Yet, it it showed not only was it safe, but their breathing was better. They they came off the ventilator faster. And, you know, this drew the attention of the physicians who were, you know, watching, is this really safe, what they are doing? you know, covering the incubator, well, how in the world can we see the baby in there? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, you want to see the pattern of the baby moving under, you know, you don't want to cover every inch of it, and uh, yet being quiet around the babies, you know, big signs, Shh, I'm growing on these incubator covers. <laughs> and, you know, the nurses were really uh, proactively very creative, and I sometimes... You know, I didn't know what the answers would be. I trusted them because I kind of trusted the baby. And I had no responsibility for the medical for the, you know, interventions the way they did them. I only was, quote, the interpreter of the baby. This works, no, this is overwhelming. This makes me really have pain. I'm I'm showing it to you. I'm in in dire straits. Can you nurse do something about it. Can you maybe try this? And, you know, so it's very collaborative. It can't be any other way. And from that, then, we got another grant. We got then a number of grants, and we did randomized controlled trials, which is what you have to do to know that something really works. You have a control group and experimental group, and you have the same chance to be in one or the other group. And... You know, the parents in the experimental group loved it. You know, they they That's what they wanted. And then other parents would see it, of course, because of one open room and they would say, can you observe my baby? Or can I get that nurse in your study? You know, that nurse that seems to know what to do. Can I have her care for my child? And so the nurse manager said, look, we've got to make this into a formal teaching approach. Everyone deserves to know about this in our unit. You can do your study, yet we also must train people. The parents who experience this variability of care get very unsettled, understandably, and you probably know that from your own experience. The one caregiver is on, you come in, they are so happy to see you, they ask how you are doing, they help you catch up where the baby is right now, they ask you how you see the baby, and you get to hold the baby, they do anything for, to help you have the baby as close as possible. And the next shift comes on and says, well, uh, he's been out long enough, now he's got to go back into the incubator. Yeah. And you know, the, the one father who told me who was holding his his daughter and she was all settled and the, the caregiver comes and says, Are you done yet? <laughs> and he said he told me I said to her, Done with what being a father? I'm just starting. You know. And so you know, these are brave parents. <laughs> Another and- another parent would have said yes of course you know and handed over the baby because the the equilibrium the, the it's it's an uneven equilibrium the, the parent will do anything for this that the staff would like just to be get the best care for their child
0: you know, it, you know it, it's an interesting experience to go through and, and to hear it right when 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 baby comes out and and you You know, I remember very clearly the day we had to walk away from the hospital. And at that point we had two children in Atlantic city and one had to get medevaced into Delaware. We were working with two NICUs and, and many, many times I would say to these wonderful angels, like, you're their parent. You're here every day. You're the one, like, why are you asking me what I want for your, for my, it it took me a while. And maybe this is the dad thing. Maybe this is a guy thing. I, I, it, it i didn't get that switch of oh that is mine um for months months and months and you know they kept saying over and over again you're their parent you're their advocate you are the voice you need to i'm not sitting sitting there going i don't know the first thing about this Uh, you know they're they're, they were born in november i was expecting them in february like you take care of you know the, the instincts didn't kick in right but but the whole idea of what you're saying is is totally those experiences that you come through of you do get on the phone with these people we were 80 miles from each of the NICU so it wasn't like it was just down the road I mean we we made an event just to go down there and sometimes we couldn't make it to see the kids for a couple days because of work and everything but when you're getting those reports and you're hoping that one I'm going to keep saying the word I'm sorry but angel is working and they're going to give you every little heartbeat that the that the kid has and then somebody else is like yep they're great you're like, no, <laughs> tell me everything about what about about the, you know, about what's going on with my kids and stuff. It's amazing. Now, I, I obviously, like you said, you're working with a lot of parents, you're working with with you know nurses, doctors, et cetera. What was that original feedback? And what is the feedback when you are working with parents and they see the quality of care and they get a chance to bond with their children, whether it be short-term NICU, long-term NICU? That's that's got to be gratifying to you to actually see those smiles come out of. The, I mean, again, you've got me crying here. But to work with those parents, how does that feel?
1: My my experience mainly is how drawn they are to the baby, and if we make it halfway feasible, you know, that they can be there, we. Now, by now, there are many more units that have what is termed uh, individual family rooms. So, where there's a baby and a family, or uh, twins and their parents. And uh, in Sweden, this developed the first time where they have even siblings and they can all be together. And one of the parents will stay. 24 hours, seven days a week throughout the child's hospitalization. That's what the, the child in the womb would have gotten. And that's what we have to figure out, how to make that feasible. And in some countries, we are much closer to that, where the parents also have the financial support, that that is still their pregnancy. They get supported during it uh, for their loss of work and you know their housing. If one per parent in the unit uh, turns it to the, the mother, turns it to the dad or the grandfather or a, a friend that they trust who will be in that child's life down the line also, uh, then that parent wants to have a rest, be in their own bed, take, take a shower, uh, check in with their other children. And in order to make that possible, it's, it's it is a systems change and it's a political change. What do we see as health care? Are we supporting the best health of the people, or are we fixing little deficits and hope it'll all work out? So the emotional cost to parents, when with their child versus when, away from their child and intermittently returning to the child is a huge cost. You know, just think of something as simple as breastfeeding your baby. You have to be there to have the body and the breast there. Well, for that you need 24-hour access to that breast. So even if the child is fed by gavage, being on the breast, being on the body, smelling the whole gestalt of the mother's body, and that milk uh, is a much more supportive environment for learning to feed, for becoming an efficient intaker of milk. That, That baby likely will go home fully breastfeeding there are some units that have actually accomplished that. And there are other units where from the beginning, the word is, it's much easier to give her the bottle. Oh, is allergic to your breast milk. Well, she may be allergic to the su- to supplements that are also given. So we we have to really be honest with all the barriers. We inadvertently put between the parent and the the baby. And no doubt it's scary to see a little 500, 600 gram child, and that is your child. Yet imagine if from the delivery room on, you and your wife and the three children could be transported together wherever you are going to end up, wherever they are going to end up. In your case, uh, another unit, uh, the third unit out of town, completely different town, uh, You know, that's a hard call. How do you manage that? Two parents are clearly not enough. So are there other, are there other support people who could jump in, sometimes they are not. And then we are in a really in a much harder place that we need to recognize you know, and need to acknowledge. So the, the, the less separation from coming out to being in a specialty setting, you know, in the case we're discussing a NICU. But this also applies to a cardiac intensive care unit that babies have to go to or neuro, neuro neurosurgical unit or whatever wherever newborns are that parent presence the avoiding the alone avoiding the being left to your own devices and dependent on who the professional caregivers are who can't stay with you, who can't provide that envelope, you know, is so critical. And how do you instrument
0: it? I it's it's complex. Yeah. Well I I'm glad that you mentioned that because throughout the life of a NICU parent, you meet many people. You start with the doctors, you go to the nurses, you got the psychiatrists, you got the, you know, the, the surgeons, if you, if you had to go down that, you, so many people. Talk to us about the importance of all of these disciplines working together, not only for the child, for each other, but just going back, for the parents as well. Right, right, right. You know, to be a little glib, they all
1: deserve knit cap. They all deserve to be understood from their backgrounds, from their specialty training, from their specialty competence as whole human beings that, are, that have chosen to work in this arena. So how can they complement one another? How can we help them be as supportive of one another as a team with the parents, the family, uh, and that 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 particular child, yeah, and uh, that does that deserves guidance that may come in certain situations by the complementation by the compliment of the people who are there. It may come more easily to them than in other settings, where the personalities, that's not a good word, but where the way their brains are made to be an intensivist, to be an, in, a surgeon, takes a very different brain from being a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And so we want them to be the best surgeon. So how can we support around them the integration of that surgical skill into that family's life? You know, and that to me is a fascinating thing that we are all in relationships. We are not, we are, we are not interchangeable. We all bring specialty, specialty perspectives and skills to, to a setting. And we want to do it the best we can. So we want to feel, feel held. We do much better work if the person right next to us thinks well of us Then, if we sense that person is very critical of me, I better watch my every move, that will take away from your neuronal power, your prefrontal cortex, to think it through how can I be my best? And, you know, that systems approach is so key. And that's what the NFI, that's what the NITCAP group, is now very much focusing on over the last some 10 years, how to help a nursery be a truly net cap nursery. How to have this perspective enmeshed into all aspects of human interaction.
0: Well, it's not just about creating this NIDCAP nursery. And again, you know, for anybody, we'll have all the links and stuff over here. It's it's NIDCAP.org, N-I-D-C-A-P.org. It's also the international. How is it providing this system, providing this support um, across countries, across multiple languages, cultures? How is this that all of this is here and it's going to support everybody? That really is the goal here. Yeah
1: yeah, uh, again, we learned by <laughs> we learned by fire. that's not just the right word, but we also learned by you know welcoming waves from other countries, from different oceans. Uh, it started in the US and we had a number of training centers in the US. And then the papers, the publications go everywhere. and so we got calls from other, people in other countries. I mean the first group were the Northern Europeans, the Swedes, Anita Kleberg and her neonatology uh, colleague at the time Bjorn Westrup, they're still colleagues, and uh, they wanted to learn about this and they came and we had long training days and uh, we showed them in the NICU where we were and what we were hoping to do and they wanted to do this intensive training. And they took it back to their unit in Falun, a small unit at the time in, uh, in northern north of Stockholm, where they implemented it, nurse and neonatology, both disciplines from the beginning working together. And that taught everybody else a lot. They became the model that it's doable, that from the beginning, the nurse and the neonatologist can be in harmony, listening to each other, supporting each other around this baby and this family. And their culture is more set up for family integration. They have different uh, uh, parent support uh, legislation and so forth. So it, they had a few... Uh, a f- they had fewer hurdles to jump than we do in the US. And the good thing is we all talk to one another. So we had in those days meetings small, the group was a small group of the knit cappers and we met annually. And Mm -hmm. the, the group is so big now and so multinational, and now we have to do it online that the time zones are becoming our biggest barriers. We have to expect our colleagues to still be mentally functioning at 2 a.m. when for us it's afternoon and it's a piece of cake. So that's that's a new hurdle. But at any rate, the European cultures, the Northern European countries came first. Uh, Sweden, Norway, Holland, uh, England, and, and and France, and then gradually the southern European countries, you know, Spain, uh, Italy. Uh, what else can I think of? And they are all well on board, and they have strong parent groups, and they they have and adva- <laughs> they have a different temperament also. They are very affectionate. Okay. So that's, that's in a way to the advantage. It's a challenge everywhere. Yet the translation of the core documents typically gets taken on by the first people in that language group uh, for the benefit of their their language peers and that's asking a lot. You know, for instance, uh, Graziella Basso, South America, she is our spanish, Spanish-Italian spanish key trainer. She can train in that language. She herself had to do it all with me in English. She had mm-hmm. to struggle through translating all the documents, and it was important enough for her that she she took that on. Now. She lives in South America that's so much more poverty. They don't have in many, many nurseries the advantages we have in in Europe and the US and Australia, which is also on board. So she says she starts first, she had to write a whole textbook for <laughs> medical and nursing professionals to put this on the map. And then... She now she does a lot of teaching, uh, education in nurseries that are not ready to go the whole NITCAP way, but laying the laying the groundwork, and you know then came gradually the the Middle Eastern and uh, Far East countries, where the cultures are so different. I mean Israel in the Middle East came took the lead, and there's a lot of European connectiv- connection and their, their culture. They are, they, you know, they are closer to the European perspective of inter- interaction of men and women and so forth than some of the other uh, countries. So going to Saudi Arabia, going to Iran, going to the, U, the Emirates, those are big cultural experiences for the trainer. Yeah. And yet the baby and the parent, that's a universal, universal human experience. And NITCAP changes culture in some fascinating ways. So Nick Kahneman, a neonatologist and NITCAP, soon-to-be master trainer in Rotterdam, he was the first to go to Saudi Arabia. And you know, he said this is really hard. They want to have the nursery look really great. They are very ambitious. How do I get the mother to this? place where she can hold her baby and enjoy this in the presence of a male physician? How do I support the father of the baby to be with his wife and his child and maybe hold that baby on his naked skin in the presence of other mothers and the male physicians? So he got there. They got there. It comes from within. It comes from within that you know, desperate desire to be with their child, especially a fragile child that tells you, I need you, mom. I want you to stay. I want to be held. And uh, it changes. Yeah, I never was in Saudi Arabia. I've been I've done a lot of work in in Iran similarly you know, and by now Iran has a big network of knit cappers, and Nick trained in two units, and I trained in Tehran in two two big nurseries and they have spread it they are they have workshops, weekly conferences, and cap is is the way to go from the health ministry. Now, in some of these countries, you have an advantage when it's, (laughs) it's probably an advantage when it's more hierarchically organized. If the Ministry of Health says, this is the standard we want to achieve for everyone, then that gets accepted more quickly. How it gets implemented is the trick it can't be just another protocol that we now do. We put the baby on the chest at such and such an angle for so many minutes. That's not NITCAP. no. And so then the trained people have to be involved to help in nurseries. So yes, that gets invoked. There are such cultural differences. Yet Beyond that, at the core, it's the same human story. It's the story of the parent and the baby that's so powerful that that says we belong together. Yeah.
0: It, it certainly is that story. You are absolutely amazing. You are totally inspirational. Wow. And... Uh, I'm going to keep saying it. You have me in tears here. Just thinking about everything that we've been through over the last six or seven years. And, and I want to say, thank you so much for your time today. And you know, I, I, this might be your first podcast, but I don't think it's going to be your last one. I would love to love to continue with this. And we'd love to do a part two of this series. Cause there's so much stuff we can sit here and unpack and, and if this, if any of these stories have been uh, impactful with you out there listening, please reach out. You can go to NIDCAP.org. You can find them online at uh, on Twitter at NIDCAP. You can go to Facebook.com, I think, forward slash NIDCAP. If you go to NIDCAP.org, all the stuff is there. Of course, we're going to have all the great links in our show notes below or wherever you guys get your shows. Of course, we're here on on Apple Podcast, Stitcher Radio, all of the great podcasting platforms. Dr. Ailes, before we let you go, is there any parting advice, anything that you want to say to the people out there who are listening, uh, whether they be medical, parents, children who have gone through it? Floor is yours. Um, Closing thoughts.
1: So many. (laughs) Uh, Listen to your baby and listen, to each baby, no matter how small, and know how important that family, those parents are to that baby's thriving and that baby's taking the best steps along their own path, no matter what that is throughout their childhood into their adult lives. You make a difference.
0: And one last time, we want to say thank you to Dr. Alls for joining us on this program. And we'd like to thank you for listening and for your ongoing collaboration in providing the best care to infants and their families. Please tune into our future episodes and don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your friends and families. For more information, visit NIDCAP.org. That's N-I-D-C-A-P.org. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NIDCAP and on Instagram. Until next time, farewell from NIDCAP, improving the future for newborns and their families.